Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Daily Evolver Live Tuesday Night Call. This is Jeff Salzman. I'm coming to you from my home in Boulder, Colorado. I'm here with Brett Walker, who's handling the tech. And it's a beautiful night in Boulder, and we are very happy to be with you tonight. Uh, as always, I'd like to start by giving a shout-out to Integral Life, which is the web portal that hosts this call. And it is the main international hub for all things Integral. Currently, they're publishing uh, nearly five hours of new exclusive footage from the 2014 Fourth Turning Conference about the future of Buddhism. And it features Ken Wilbur and a number of renowned Buddhist teachers, such as Diane Musho Hamilton, Doshin Michael Roshi, and Andrew Holacek. And it's a great conference. I was there and um, really moving the ball in terms of an, a more integral Buddhism. All right. So tonight, we want to look at a couple of the stories that have really galvanized the world and, and dominated media attention really all over the world. And that is the shooting down of the airliner over the Ukraine. And the other is the conflict in Israel between the Palestinians and the Israelis in Gaza. So I want to start with a couple poll questions and just see what you folks are thinking about these issues, just in the most broad terms. These are questions that NBC News asks, so I'm going to ask you. Question number one, should the U.S. send lethal aid to Ukraine? That is, arms, tanks, missiles, so forth. If you think that the U.S. should arm the Ukrainians, press 1 for yes. If you think they ought not arm the Ukrainians, press no. So that's the first question. And I'll get to the second question a little later because Brett has to count up the votes on this first one. Yes, you meant yes. press two for no. Oh, I did mean to press two for no. Thank you, Brett. So yes, we should arm the Ukrainians. No, we should not arm the Ukrainians. Just keep sending them. We currently send them food and aid and some advisors. All right. For those of you who would like to brush up on your integral theory or are kind of new to integral theory, I would encourage you to check out a couple charts that will help you follow along what I'm talking about. You can get them on the reminder email that came to you about this call. There's a link at the bottom of that email. And this is a chart. There's a chart called the levels of development, which chart out the stages, the levels of cultural and consciousness and technological development in cultures. And this is one of the key principles of integral theory. And the other is the quadrants. And this is also a key principle of integral theory, which says that all of reality arises in first, second, and third person. And uh, so you can check that out. And if you aren't following all the details, don't worry about it. We're going to try to hit things in terms of a pretty broad brush here. Before I get into the big stories, I do want to talk a little bit about an old friend of mine who's really kind of hitting the bullseye here in the culture, and that's Brian Robertson, who's getting a lot of mainstream media attention for his system of business management that he's developed called Holacracy. It's a governance system for organizations. 
And it's integral from the ground up. I mean, I knew Brian when he was working on it back in 2005, 2006, 2007. And it's a really amazing system that has been written up now in The Economist, in Forbes magazine, in a lot of websites. It's getting attention because it's been adopted by the company Zappos, which is uh, an acquisition of Amazon. So it's really important. A big company is a shoe mail order company and web order company for shoes. Uh, it's founded by Tony Zing, who is one of the founders of Facebook. And Holacracy is based on the idea of holons, which is uh, another key aspect of evolutionary theory in general, which says that the world is made up of things that are both holes, W-H-O-L-E-S, they're whole in and of themselves, and they're parts of a bigger whole. And the classic examples in evolution is atoms become molecules, molecules become cells, cells become organisms, and yet they keep their characteristics as they order themselves into ever more complex systems. And holacracy really attempts to do that with people by eliminating hierarchy and really eliminating bosses. Uh, in Zappos, Tony Singh is uh, no longer CEO. He's the lead link of the main governance circle of Zappos. And they're trying to create in larger structures the kind of responsiveness and flexibility and juice, really, that you find in startup companies. And that's why Holacracy is really taking off in Silicon Valley. And it's part of a larger trend towards really team-based management in general, which is sort of a green movement in, in business management that started in the 70s and 80s. In fact, there was a Stephen Kurtwright, who's a Texas A&M business professor, talked about how holacracy is really the, the latest of this. I, I argue with that just a bit in, in a minute. But he's saying that 20% of Fortune 500 companies had team-based structures in the 1980s. In the 1990s, it was 50%. In 2000, it was 80%. And it's just grown from there. And what holacracy does, I think, is actually moves beyond a team-based approach to really a new emergent. I would say that, again, teams are, are green and nothing wrong with that. There's very healthy. It's progress over command and control hierarchy. But holacracy brings a new emergent even into the team structure. I know this because I worked with Brian. We, we all did, those of us who were part of the Integral Institute, back in 2005, 2006, 2007. And, and Brian was developing this, and we were talking to him, and we were really guinea pigs. There were 40 of us working at the Integral Institute at that time and reorganized ourselves as best we could. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, it was a sort of a mixed experiment, but that's what experiments are for. And, and I know Brian's up to version 4.0 in Holacracy, so I imagine he's ironed out some of the wrinkles that tripped us up a little bit. But there was one piece of it that uh, is just, I think, really amazing and transcendent, actually. It actually helps create something that we talk about a lot in the integral world, and that is intersubjective enlightenment. That is enlightenment among people, a we space that is operating at a higher altitude than typical we spaces or typical teams. And one of the things that I think really makes holacracy evoke that 
is this move that Brian made that I think really takes it from green to integral. And that is these meetings don't work on consensus. They work on a principle that he calls consent. There's a very, very radical difference. It's a subtle difference in execution, sort of, but it's a radical difference in result. And let's just look at them just briefly. A consensus, we all know what consensus is. That's where you get people together, you get the team together, and you know everybody's heard and everybody's concerns and everybody's perspectives, and, and we seek agreement and try to get everybody on board. And that's, you know, as I said, that's progress over typical con command and control hierarchies. But we also know how stultifying and long-winded and time-wasting these kinds of meetings can be. And so with consent, as opposed to consensus, you're not really looking for agreement. You're looking for acquiescence. And, 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 and that's interesting. So what we're doing in, in a circle meeting in Holacracy is somebody would come in with, for instance, and we, we, we were, I was working with the circle that managed the whole institute. We were sort of responsible. We were the main lead circle. And so our uh, accounts receivable person would come in and say, in our circle, we need to hire another person because our seminar division is doing great. We're you know, billing more. We're working with more money. We need another person. We decided we'd like to hire another person. So unless you have a concrete and immediate objection to that, there's something about that decision that will create some sort of stress in your part of the system or in the circle that you're representing. Unless that happens, it goes through. And you have time to question the person and so forth. But it's very, very focused on, is there an objection? So it's not about convincing anybody. It's not about, uh, this is the best course of action. It's not about it being ideal. It's, we're not interested in anybody else's stories about it. All of these things can happen outside the circle. But in the circle, the question is simply, is there any objection? And if there isn't, things move forward. And that is done. And that decision can always be brought up again. It's very, very efficient. What happens is it, it actually accesses a, a different kind of wisdom of the group. Rather than that consensus wisdom, which is a sort of an integration of many perspectives, it actually is just simply trusting the person and the circle, because a person's always representing a circle in holacracy. Uh, that's working actually closest with the problem at hand. So accounts receivable knows better than anybody else in the company whether or not they need another person. And they also know that they don't have to get more people than they need and they don't have to spin and they don't have to, you know, uh, protect their turf. Uh, they just simply, they're, 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 in addition to taking their circle's needs into account, they're taking the larger company into account. And this really does bring that forth, this pushing trust and pushing decision-making closest to the actual action on the ground. And it, I remember that we would have these uh, circle meetings uh, under this holocratic process, and it would be literally thrilling to see how quickly we would move through decisions and how um, light everything felt and energized and how smart we felt and how in tune with each other and confident. And it really did access a higher wisdom. 
I just can't say enough about Holacracy. I'm thrilled that it's getting attention, mainstream attention. And, you know, Godspeed, Brian. You're doing good work. Brian Robertson. All right. So, as for the question, should the U.S. arm the Ukrainians? Well, the answer is no. <laughs> A resounding no from the integral crowd here in the call. 7% say yes, 93% say no. And I think I'm going to be in that no camp too. But let me just, you know, shed some light on uh, what I see is going on here and, you know, how an integral perspective can really help us understand this situation in Russia and Ukraine, particularly as it relates to the downing of this airliner, which, you know, 300 people died uh, that could have been any of us, any of us who are world travelers. You know, you get on these airplanes and you don't know what you're flying over. In fact, I'm always shocked when I'm flying over because the globe sort of confuses me. I'm not great with the space kind of thing. And all of a sudden, you know, bam, 300 people are dead. And one of the things we notice as we look at this, and we also notice as we look at what's going on in Israel and Gaza, is that the people who are actually fighting these battles, if we look at our levels of development chart, these people are what we call traditionalists, that is the amber altitude of development, or the warrior, red uh, stage of development. And these are both pre-modern in terms of their thinking. Now remember, pre-modern people, people who have a pre-modern mentality, can often very easily use modern weaponry. But they don't have a modern mindset. They have a mindset of zero sum. When my tribe wins or my group wins, your group or your nation loses. And they're very much tied to things like land and blood. And there's a song that has just been popping up in my mind all week that I'd like to sing for you. No, I won't sing it for you. But <laughs> I will link to it on, on our site. And, but I, I, I want to give you the words. And this is the, the lyrics for the song Exodus from the movie Exodus, which was made, I believe, in 62 by Otto Preminger. It starred uh, Paul Newman. It was based on a novel by uh, Leon Uris. And it was about the um, creation of Israel. And Paul Newman uh, uh, smuggles 600 and some Holocaust survivors into Israel on a boat. And, you know, it's an adventure story. It glorifies this Zionist impulse to create this, you know, recreate this ancient land of Israel. And here's the words. They say, this land is mine. God gave this land to me. This brave, this ancient land to me. And when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains, I see a land where children can run free. So take my hand and walk this land with me. And walk this lovely land with me. Though I am just a man, when you are by my side, with the help of God, I know I can be strong. This land is mine. God gave this land to me. I'll make this land our home. 
If I must fight, I'll fight to make this land our own. Until I die, this land is mine. You know, as integralists, we really want to feel in to what is the consciousness, what is the psyche of people who are different than us. And most of us are modern, postmodern, integral. And this sense of the land being so important, we can still feel it. I mean, every culture can feel that. Every culture, I've mentioned this before, every individual, you know, provided they're, you know, well enough cared for by their parents and people, are born into a world of basic goodness where they learn the beauty of the world, first of all, in their land uh, and in their people and the soul of their people and the uniqueness of their people and the love of their grandparents and the louche, you know, that sort of liquid love that is part of the material of the universe. And blood, this idea that my people have a special quality that no matter where they are, uh, they're part of my people and my land. And this is very, very motivating. We can, as, as I said, as integralists, we can even feel into how that is. And from an integral perspective, we want to feel into that because there's a beauty to that. And there's something that we can bring forth. You know, even my Americanness, even though we're a nation of mutts, mongrels in a, in a way, uh, the melting pot, there's a quality of Americanness that I don't want to define me. But I want to notice that it is online and part of me. And at the green stage of development, that's the postmodern stage. That's kind of embarrassing. You know, it's kind of like quaint and weird and, you know, regressive. Uh, but a traditional, it's everything. And so this is really what's motivating the Russians and particularly Putin with this uh, sort of diaspora that's going on in Ukraine, it goes against the sort of caricature that we have of Putin and the Russians in the West, that they're just sort of bad guys and they just, you know, they're out to, you know, take over. Uh, but there's actually something that's really quite soulful at the crux of the motivation here. So Putin's a nationalist. And so are the vast majority of Russians, at least according to the latest Gallup poll. I didn't even know that Gallup was polling Russians, but they are. And Putin now has an 83% approval rating, which is tied with his all-time high and up nearly 30 points from 2013. Uh, I'm sorry, from, uh, from his high at uh, 2008. So he's, um, you know, very, very popular and, uh, and people are going for this. And what is, I think, becoming most clear is that this has been really a bad thing for both Putin and Russia, despite the fact that, you know, they're kind of all for it at the moment, which is not unusual for a country, particularly a country with a traditionalist center of gravity in any kind of a war or conflict. You, it's like, you know, so the support for George Bush was close to 80% after 9-11. Uh, people do that. But um, it, uh, you just realize how much harder it is to subjugate a country 
these days than it used to be. In the bad old days, of course, the, the days of the Soviet Union and before, well, you could just roll the tanks in, which is what the Soviet Union did in Czechoslovakia in 1968. And you just, you know, take back the country from the people who are trying to break away. Or um, even looking at the not-so-old history of the Ukraine back in 1943, I'm sorry, 1932 and 1933, there was a separatist independence movement in the Ukraine. The president of Russia at that time was, or the Soviet Union, was Joseph Stalin, and he did a uh, a systematic uh, famine purge in Ukraine that starved somewhere between four and six million people, depending on the estimates. And that happened in two years. And at the height of the famine, Ukrainians were dying at the rate of 25,000 a day, 1,000 an hour, or 17 per minute. That's in Wikipedia. And that is about 20 minutes worth of um, would take to uh, to match the uh, the the people who were lost in the airplane. So you know this is a big deal, and and I think it actually is sort of um, evidence of the progress that humanity's making. That something that costs the lives of three hundred people is getting this kind of attention. That's progress. We're happy for that, but we want to keep perspective that this is in terms of, you know, the history of warfare and the history of humanity. We're now working with very, very small numbers of casualties. This is also true in Israel and Gaza. Uh, it's a little less true in Syria, where there's been over 100,000 people killed, and also in Iraq, where it has similar numbers. Now, those are some big numbers, but still nothing like World War II, nothing like World War I, nothing like Vietnam, actually, or Korea in terms of the cost, nothing like the Civil War uh, or, uh, you know, the wars of the past and, and, and the structures of the past. And we know in an archaic and tribal structures of development, people died from violence, you know, sometimes upward of 8 to 10% of the population died in violence. So, again, the march of progress in terms of the lessening of human violence continues. The second thing that I think is obvious here is that it's harder to keep secrets. Uh, the again, again, in the bad old days, I remember in the Soviet Union, it was always so interesting to me that a plane would crash and the news media just plain old didn't report it at all. The Soviet people had no idea that that happened. We'd know because of satellites, but they wouldn't. And the Russian media is undergoing some retrogression. The media is now mostly controlled by the government. The few independent sources that were out there before have been muzzled or shut down. Uh, I guess some Internet sites are continuing to run. But people are still getting information, although, you know, there's been a lot made of, of how the Russians have really spun this story. And one of the most interesting examples of that is what's happening in uh, a site I go to regularly called RT, which is Russian television. It's a major 
very slick, 24-7, kind of CNN-like Russian television company, broadcast company. The broadcast they, in Russian, they broadcast in English and other languages as well. Uh, and I was just there today to see what was going on. And, you know, just some of the secondary stories, they did, they did talk about the, the, the air, airline, and I'll get to that in a second. But there was a story about the coral reefs dying in Australia, the Great Barrier Reef. But it was all about runoff and poor water quality and uh, liquefied natural gas facility and that sort of thing. There was no mention of global warming or the, the change in the acidity of the oceans or any of the sort of world-centric uh, explanations for that. They talk about a rotten food scandal that involves Burger King and Starbucks and McDonald's in China, which is a story I didn't know, you know. Uh, I don't know how true it is, but it's, uh, you know, this is part of the inquiry and just part of what it is to be uh, an integralist in 2014, where you can actually see what the Russian government is putting out in English. Uh, there was a story about welfare cuts and pressures in UK, which has driven a hundred, driven a million people in the UK to homelessness. And, uh, and then about the, the crash, the, um, the Malaysian airliner. The, as, as Time magazine wrote, and I'll just read a paragraph from Time. They wrote, in the aftermath of the crash last week, the RT machine, this is that Russian television machine, kicked into overdrive, churning out a steady stream of strange reports. In an effort to implicitly assign blame on the Ukrainians, it noted the proximity of Putin's own plane. It quoted a Russian defense ministry source asking why a Ukrainian Air Force jet was detected nearby. And it quoted another anonymous Russian official who volunteered the juicy claim that a Ukrainian anti-aircraft missile was operational in the vicinity at the time of the incident. And at this point, one of their lead on-air personalities, an anchor who, uh, by the name of Sarah Firth, who was a British journalist, and she'd been an anchor on Russian TV here, she resigned over this. And in her interview with Time, she said, this was the last straw for her. She said it was just mass information manipulation, uh, and she talked about what it was to be at Russia Television, RT.com. And it's interesting. You should read the article. I'll, I'll link to it. Um, on one hand, it's a very slick operation. It's well-financed. It's staffed by committed journalists. The staff really wants to do good and bring information. But in the last few years, and particularly in the last year under Putin, uh, there have been every story comes with basically, you know, the end point. As she said, I think I have a quote here from this. She said, she said, we are lying every single day at RT. There are a million different ways to lie. And I really learned that at RT. And that um, I did have a quote here, but oh. They have a very clear idea in their mind of what they're trying to prove, and every story comes with what the conclusion should be. Anyway, it's just a very, very interesting look into this sort of quasi-dictatorship uh, and quasi-free. It reminds me in a certain way of the way the media was in this country, in the United States, back during World War II. 
And it wasn't that there were government censors. There were, of course. But it didn't take a heavy hand to keep the media from writing stories that were sympathetic to the Germans or the Japanese. That just wasn't going to happen. At that traditionalist stage of development, the media is really used as a creator of patriotic stories. Uh, it's not about fact-finding. That's more of a modern media emergent. And when you get to postmodern media, it's basically about criticizing and, you know, ridiculing and making fun of everybody. And that's, you know, a sort of a developmental move in the media that Russia's having a sort of a, a retrenchment there. So anyway, it's just I thought that was interesting. And again, it's linked on the site. So what's likely to happen here? Well, I was watching CNN today and, you know, CNN at least tries to be more modern in the sense that they're, you know, they're not like Fox where they have more of, this, you know, we have our own traditionalists. Fox News is the home of the traditionalists in America. MSNBC is the home more for the postmodernists in America. And CNN tries to be uh, in the middle, you know, just more traditionally fact-finding and so forth. But their big sort of tone of the, at least the one broadcast I watched today, which is Jake Tapper's broadcast, was where's the outrage? What's going on that, you know, the rest of the world is allowing these bodies to be out there for three or four days? And why isn't the world coming together and, and fixing this? And European response and U.S. response has been substantively different. Uh, the U.S. has been wanting to increase sanctions on Russia, and the U EU, the Europeans, are a, a lot more hesitant, even today. They did increase the sanctions at the EU today, but not uh, all the way to what we call the Phase 3 sanctions, which are sanctions of whole sections of the economy. Uh, if they get the Phase 3 sanctions, the uh, they won't be able to sell warships. The French right now are selling warships to the Russians. The Brits are complaining about that. The French are complaining about the Brits continuing to host Russian financiers in London. And um, it's just going to be interesting to see what the world reaction is. Because in the world of real politic, where, you know, ide ideology sort of takes a back seat to what's actually practical. And this is, again, a, a sort of a modern move. It's not about so much, you know, my pride and my people and, you know, precedence. In a way, it's a little bit more like holacracy. We're not worried about spinning fears and, and, you know, thinking about what might happen. We're worrying about what's here and now and what's concrete and immediate. And the Europeans, it'll be interesting to see, as I said, what I know a lot of Europeans listen to this. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what you folks do in terms of punishment for this act with Russians and Putin. And it'll be interesting to see how Putin deals with his separatist militias in the Ukraine and, um, and how that unfolds. My guess is that this will stand, that Russia will continue to stay in East Ukraine, and that Russia and Europe will continue to trade 
there'll probably be some more sanctions on the margins. But, you know, for the United States, about 4% of our trade is with the Russians. And with Europeans, it's upwards, in some cases, to 50 plus percent. And I think a good precedent is really what happened to uh, this part of Moldova called Transnistria, which has been occupied by pro-Russian forces very similar to the Ukraine since 1992. And again, this conflict began when a group that uh, wanted to secede from the um, Russia, Soviet Union, Soviet sphere took up arms. And um, there was a the, the, the Soviet or the Russians in Moldova resisted and got support from the Russian military. And a ceasefire was declared in July of 1992. But the conflict has remained frozen ever since. In other words, the Russian continued to stay there and occupy that land and cause trouble. So I'm afraid that will continue in Ukraine. But nobody seems to be willing to bring out the guns. Uh, it was 100 years since World War I. And, uh, you know, a lot's changed. We're just uh, borders aren't so important. That's another thing that is true as we develop, as we get into modernity and postmodernity. My people, you know, I think of myself, I'm Salzman, so I'm German. My Germanness means, what does Germ my Germanness mean to me? Not a whole lot. Actually, I mean, I've been to Germany. I'm sort of interested and, you know, I like it. I, I, I sort of feel German in, in a certain way. I look German. But do I care about the great Germanic people getting back together again? No, it's weird. It doesn't even make sense. It's sort of repulsive to me, that whole idea. And that's the difference between the world space of people who are living in that sort of red amber warrior traditional level and people who are living in modern, postmodern, and integral. And we see it in, well, the EU is a perfect example of countries where, you know, you can travel from one to the other with, with great ease. It's very similar to the United States. And really, the developed world in general, a travel and trade, just are sort of borders are becoming less and less relevant, we'll put it that way. So they become less and less relevant in the third person, in terms of visas and trade barriers and so forth. But they also become less relevant in our hearts. They're just not so, um, you know, not so gripping as they are at those earlier stages of development. So let's just look uh, for a moment at how this, really, the same process is arising a thousand miles due south of the Ukraine in Israel and Gaza. And that thousand miles sort of even sort of, I, I pause and think about that because that's roughly the distance between Boulder and, and Chicago. It's not that far. And we Americans tend to feel, you know, sort of safe and, and, and isolated uh, in not always a good way from the rest of the world. So I want to ask another poll question. And this is another poll question asked by N M uh, NBC. And that is, who do you think is more responsible for the violence in Israel and Gaza, the Israelis or the Palestinians? Press 1 
for the Israelis and press 2 for the Palestinians. Okay, who do you think is more responsible for the violence? One, Israel, two, Palestinians. Okay, just a couple thoughts on that. And by the way, also, if you have any comments or questions, you can press one after you've done the poll. Give Brett a little time to count the votes here. Or you can also email your questions to Brett, B-R-E-T-T, at dailyevolver.com. And I'll try to get to some questions here in a few minutes. But I, I do want to say just a couple things, make a couple observations about what's going on in Israel and Gaza, because it's, although it's the same thing in the sense that traditionalists, the red-amber structures of development, the, the warrior-slash-traditionalists, are the ones who are really interested in doing the fighting. Now, the difference is that there are a far higher proportion of these pre-modern people, you will say, pre-modern mentality people in among the Palestinians than the Israelis, although they both have both. And the pre-modern Israelis are just as dangerous and just as pugilistic and just as nationalistic and racist and religious as they are on the other side. And religion has a lot to do with it. If you really do think that Almighty God gave this land to your people 4,000 years ago, and that is what animates your life and your psyche, then you'll happily die in the process. If I, if I must die, this land is mine. And that's what's going on here, except in this case, it's just like Groundhog Day. Over and over and over again. And it's, it, you know, when I think of myself, you know, which button would I press? One or two? Who's more responsible? I, you know, there's a, th th this is where the, something that I've referred to a few times on this call called the, the law of the infinite cornucopia comes into play. And that is that there is in our media environment where we know so much about history and culture and all of the factors around these issues, that you can make a case for either one uh, of these answers. And they're, per, per, they're completely logically and morally consistent cases. You know, the Palestinians were uh, essentially invaded by the uh, Zionists starting around the turn of the 20th century, uh, after World War II, there were a couple hundred thousand Jews in Palestine at that point. Uh, there was a UN resolution that created the State of Israel for the Jews. People were horrified at what happened to the Jews in World War II. So the Palestinians were definitely the victims here. And there's been two wars. There's been endless war. Uh, there's uh, two major hot wars and a number of intifadas, these small skirmishes like we're having now, relatively small. But in the two major wars, Israel got another 20-some percent of the country. They started out with 56 percent. They're now close to 80 percent of the country. And the Palestinians are, you know, they have a case. And they're not interested because they're at the traditional center of gravity. And again, there are modern Palestinians, there are postmodern Palestinians. And as integralists, we want to keep them in mind because these people are actually key to the future. 
These people are the ones who are really going to push the countries, push these cultures forward. Because the answer to all of these wars and skirmishes is really development. As people develop out of traditionalism into modernity, into modern thinking in their interiors, they see that fighting is not the way forward that actually conquering another country is too much trouble. The way forward for every country is to trade and travel and, you know, have fun with other countries. And it's to mutual benefit. It's not a zero-sum game. On the other hand, the Israeli have a case that they are, um, how would we like to have a thousand rockets lobbed at us from those treacherous Canadians to the north. You know, we have to watch those people like a hawk. But, you know, can you imagine if there were rockets being lobbed into Detroit or New York City or Cleveland or, you know, wherever from, uh, you know, from Canada, from Mexico? I mean, we wouldn't stop until uh, whatever was threatening us was obliterated as, you know, look what, what happened in Iraq or Afghanistan. So, um, you know, the Israelis have a case. And as famous line here from Netanyahu, he said, we use missiles to protect our people. They use their people to protect their missiles. And this is, this is, there's truth to this in the sense that this asymmetrical warfare between a modern opponent of two enemies, one of whom is modern, that's uh, the um, Israelis. And of course, the Israelis could um, win this war overnight if they wanted to just pull out the stops and do what human beings have done for most of human history, just go in there and mow down the enemy. Uh, but they can't now because, first of all, their own moral development won't let them. That's not what we do anymore. This is, you know, again, huge moral progress, plus the rest of the world is watching. So while Israel has the uh, capability. They hold back. They try to minimize uh, civilian deaths. Uh, I think that the world thinks that they should minimize that more. You know, they have the Iron Dome, this amazing technological marvel that basically stops these rockets uh, coming from Gaza. Uh, they have apps on their cell phones that tell them when a rocket's been launched so they can hide. And on the other side, we have the uh, Palestinians who are using human shields. And oftentimes, they're using human shields who are very enthusiastic about being human shields. Uh, you see pictures are so much on YouTube and Twitter and, you know, this sort of new media universe that lets us see this stuff, uh, you know, just in its... Uh, you know, basically from every perspective, you see these rooftops filled with Palestinians. People bring their kids to these rooftops to stop the Israelis from, from, from um, shooting them. And th this is not the sign of people who are being you know, forced to do this. These are people who are at a stage of development where it's a glory to die for your country and for your people and for your God. And when that's all you have, I mean, there's a certain romantic, tragic, romantic quality to it that we want to notice and is, is, you know, kind of heartbreaking.
one of the things they have going for them, one of the weapons that they have actually is the conscience of their enemy and the conscience of their enemy's allies, that is the United States and the developed world. And they're using it. And you kind of can't blame them for using it. So who's more responsible, Israel or the Palestinians? Among integralists, 77% say the Israelis are more responsible, and 23% say the Palestinians. So um, that's what we think. So if you have any questions or comments, again, press 1, and uh, we can take a look. There were a couple other things I wanted to mention, oh, in terms of what we should do and, and what's really happening that's, I, I think, interesting and in, in, in something in common with both the Ukraine situation and the situation in Israel and Obama's response. Of course, Obama is roundly criticized by the right, by the traditionalists in our country. But what we're seeing is that tradi the traditionalists in our country, the Republicans, the right wing, have really two different flavors of their own response. On one hand, we have John McCain and Lindsey Graham, who are, you know, I go to bed every night thanking my lucky stars that we don't have a President McCain, because we would be, we would have armies in both of these areas at, the, at this point. Uh, well, actually, who knows? There's, there's really so little support among the people for that. But they're, they're talking mighty tough. In fact, Lindsey Graham was quoted as saying that, you know, when they ask him, so what would you do that Obama hasn't done? He said, well, he didn't call Putin a thug. <laughs> so I guess that's, uh, if that's what your, uh, the alternative is to, to the Republican policy, then, uh, you know, again, I like, I like, um, Obama. Uh, on the other hand, there, there's a, a, a definitely a movement on the right for, you know, just sort of letting these things happen or not, not, getting in the middle of every crisis that happens in the world. And this is being put forward by Rand Paul, senator from Tennessee, who is a likely presidential contender for the Republican nomination, and one of the top uh, right-wing thinkers, George Will. And I love uh, a formulation that he came up with called narcissistic policy disorder. And he says... Narcissistic policy disorder is something America has, and the, particularly the American media has, and the American political system. And it's the idea that if something happens anywhere in the world, it's because of something we did or didn't do, or something we said or didn't say. In other words, it's all about us. And we need to get over that. And this is why I think with Obama, we have basically a historical president that will um, be seen, I think, uh, from a future perspective as helping lead America into the world where we are more integrated with the rest of the developed world. And we're no longer the one indispensable nation. Maybe we still are in a certain way that we still have this huge military but we're more one of the gang now, and that's both good and bad. I mean, you see, uh, you know, there's probably some truth that 
uh, Putin, uh, Bashar Assad, uh, uh, the um, uh, Maliki in Iraq, uh, even Karzai in Afghanistan, probably pushed further than they would have had there been a President McCain. But the cost to us uh, to keep the peace, to be the world's policeman, is just no longer tenable. Uh, it's no longer acceptable to the American people. And that's what's really, I think, great progress. And Obama is really just, um, in a way, executing that national consensus. So we have, I see some questions and comments. And I think I'll end, uh, before we take some questions, with another song that has uh, come up in my mind, another favorite song of mine, that is also you know, sort of a big anthem, just like the Exodus song. But it comes from a much higher stage of development, more of a postmodern slash integral stage of development. And it's the, one of the theme songs from the musical Chess, C-H-E-S-S, -S, which is a musical. I think it started in London, came to Broadway. You see it around. It's a good show about a big chess tournament championship between an American champion and a Russian champion. And of course, this was a big uh, Bobby Fischer and Kasparov in, I think, the 80s or 90s. It's based on that loosely. And the Russian defects to the Americans, and then he defects back. And, and he sings this song called Anthem, where he talks about his view of his relationship to his land. And it's, again, very different than Exodus. And, and these are the words to Anthem. He sings, No man or madness, though their sad power may prevail, can possess or conquer my country's heart. They rise to fail. She is eternal, long before nations' lines were drawn, when no flags flew, when no armies stood, my land was born. And you ask me why I love her, through wars, death, and despair. She is the constant. It's we who don't care. And you wonder, will I leave her? But how? I cross over borders, but I'm still there now. How can I leave her? Where would I start? Let men's petty nations tear themselves apart. My land's only borders lie around my heart. And I love that. It's a world-centric view. My land is everywhere. This world is my land. And the only borders lie around my heart. So, let's... Take a look at a couple questions. Okay, here's the first one. It's hard to fully embrace your no more war prediction as I watch Hamas and Israel pound each other, separatists shooting civilians out of the sky, and Iraq and Afghanistan revert. The world hasn't seemed this bloody and crazed in a long time. I'm trying to keep my eye on the bigger picture, but dot, dot, dot. 
It is. It's it's very counterintuitive. Uh, the, the 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 human beings are wired. Psychologists call it a negativity bias. We're wired to notice what's wrong, and an incident that kills three hundred people rivets the world. Again, compare that to any time in history, and um, you see that. Um, you know, much far greater numbers. And this is just basically fact. It's, it's, it's put forward in, you know, a lot of forms, but one of the main ones that I love and rely on so much is a book that was published, I think, a year or two ago uh, called The Better Angels of Our Nature by Steven Pinker, the MIT professor. It's a very influential book that makes the case just statistically and um, I think very, very compellingly that human beings have become less and less violent at every stage of development through tribal, warrior, traditional, modern, even the first half of the 20th century with all of its, you know, what, 57, 60 million people who died. Uh, that was, in terms of per capita, a safer century than the uh, 19th century, the 18th century, the 17th century. And it has been in lockstep that the world has become pacified uh, as we hit modernity. And that's really the key, is hitting modernity. Modernity in, and we have to hit modernity in the interiors. And it's just simply one of those realizations that happen where we see that fighting is just too much trouble. We can actually trust each other. We can actually partner with each other. We're no longer seeing the world in terms of some cosmic battle between good and evil, between the God and the devil. If you see the world as a battle between God and the devil, which is how people at traditionalism see the world, then you can understand why people at traditional levels of development aren't interested in compromise. They're not interested really in sitting down. Any kind of a uh, ceasefire or compromise is generally seen as a strategy towards the larger goal, which is to defeat the enemy. The devil is not to be associated with. The devil is to be defeated. And so as we move into you know, modern mentality, that changes, and that is a major radical improvement for humanity in terms of uh, you know, the, the reduction of violence. Okay, another question. If you have a holocratic structure being used in an organization that is made up of people that are center of gravity modern or even pre-modern, does it still work? That's a good question. And the answer is yes, it does. It's just, it was one of the things we notice in integral theory is that people can have state experiences. That is, they can have uh, uh, temporary experiences of operating at higher levels of development. This is true in individual meditation as well. Uh, people at any stage of development can have an enlightenment experience. They'll interpret it at the level that they're uh, living at. But the experience of oneness, the experience of uh, being surrounded by love, that happens at every stage of development, that loving intelligence. And so, yes, uh, that interpersonal Enlightenment, the subjective enlightenment, the group team circle enlightenment that happens in holacracy 
can happen for people at any stage of development. And it's very, very delicious. Okay, I see we have a question from David Vaughn. Yeah, hi. Hi, Jeff. Can you hear hey, me? David. Yeah, here you good. Where are you from? The program uh, every week now for about a year. We've been, my wife and I, listening in to the Daily Evolver, and it really helps a lot. Cool. And something that came up, uh, a question I've been wanting to ask you some time and just haven't gotten in there, is, uh, and you, you brought up the Polarchy tonight and the work that's being done with that and what you're doing with the Daily Evolver. Is there any chance of you getting, uh, or anybody in the integral that has the kind of grasp that you do and is known of getting into the media networks with integral so that maybe you'd even get interviewed by some people to let, uh, let more people know about this because now when I listen to the news and it's not integral, it's I'm, I'm having to, you know, I, yeah. I, I have the perspective of, of integral when I sit here and watch on television or on the computer, but I would sure like to see more people in the media have some kind of understanding of it so they can start uh, uh, using yeah. that yeah, I would too. And I think that'll happen. And I think, uh, you know, the integral movement is gen definitely growing. Uh, but it's, th there's some antibodies that the mainstream media have to integral. And, you know, every stage of development has antibodies to other stages. And any stage of development also sees what's emerging, what's new. They don't see it as progress. They see it as regress. So when we go to modernists uh, and we or, or postmodernists and we talk about a natural hierarchy that there are that there's cultural evolution and there are people and cultures that are more evolved and people and cultures that are less evolved or at least more complex and less complex that that hits a um, an antibody in the modern and postmodern mind that sees that as regression to the old dominator hierarchies of the past where people dominated each other because they could. It was basically as simple as that. And they used, of course, all kinds of rationales for it. But basically it was domination, like the colonialists and that sort of thing. So that's a problem for uh, modernists and postmodernists. And the other problem for, post, uh, for modernists and postmodernists is that Integral has an explicit... Uh, understanding and embracing of spirit and sees that the universe is lit up with a loving intelligence that existed since the Big Bang and maybe before. And that atoms and molecules, we're talking about these holons, that all holons actually have interiors. Atoms have interiors. They're little interiors, <laughs> they're little tiny interiors, but they're there. And they have little tiny, you know, collective interiors where they associate with each other. And, uh, and that is, uh, to a scientific materialist, which is still by far the dominant worldview, uh, in the world, uh, they, they just have a, a whole lot of trouble with that. So, you know, there's a certain scandal of integral that we're going to have to live through, uh, as integral becomes more and more, uh, sort of accepted or at least aired, you know brought forth into the world. I mean, we're, we're, 
making the outrageous statement that liberals are more complex than conservatives. They actually come online. We've only had liberals in terms of green postmodernists for the last 50, 60 years. Uh, we've had modernists for 300. We've had traditionalists for about 5,000. So try that one on at Fox News sometime. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, I see we're over time, and I, um, I'm always happy to be here and talk to you folks. And uh, let's keep it going. Pay attention to what's going on. And, you know, one of the things we can do as integralists is really just support development. And there are a lot of people who are doing it. Um, I think of Thomas Hubel, who lives in Israel. He's German. He's a spiritual teacher that really touched a lot of people in the integral world. He's working on reconciliation with Germans and Jews and Palestinians and Jews. I think of Don Beck and Elsa Malud. She's Palestinian and the work they're doing. Again, there are a lot of modern and postmodern Palestinians. They want to live in peace. And, you know, they're over this idea of, you know, Israel ever being uh, eliminated. You know, this idea that continues to animate these earlier stages. So we want to support people like that. And we want to also keep a positive attitude. I, you know, I hate to be sort of cliche about this, but, you know, the world is continuing to, even with things like this current intifada and, and you know, the, the Malaysian airliner, the world continues to, you know, progress towards greater structures of goodness, truth, and beauty. And, and actually, I'm reading a book. I'll report on it. Uh, in a later call called The New Arabs, which is really a wonderful uh, overview of what's going on in the Arab world that is really under the surface. These NGOs, the young people, how they're getting together and networking and really creating whole new mentalities. Uh, this generation Y of Arabs are far less religious, far less politically polarized than their parents it's uh, it's 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 almost like what what happened with gay rights in America, while Congress and state houses are passing defensive marriage acts, the world just continues to get friendlier and friendlier to gays until finally, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, surprises everybody. Uh, there's just a tipping point, and so I expect that to happen in the Middle East. Uh, it is happening. Uh, it happens. Um, well, again, we can talk more about this in a future call. But, you know, we have to have heart and take heart. Uh, otherwise, it's, you know, if you just listen to the media, it's just, you know, as Mark Twain famously said, one goddamn thing after the next. So we don't want to be thinking in that way. All right, folks. Again, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Uh, this is Jeff Salzman signing off.